Hi everyone, welcome to this M2D2 talk. Um, our speaker today is um, Paula Marine Zapata, and um, she'll be talking about her recent work about how to use uh, cell morphology to guide the novel redesign in drug discovery. Um, a bit about Paula before we start. Um, Paula is a data scientist at uh, BioAG in, in Berlin. She obtained her PhD in biology from the German Cancer Research Center, DKFD. Um, in 2017, she joined Bayer as a postdoctoral fellow where she developed a deep learning method for phenotypic profiling in plant sciences and cellular imaging. Since 2019, she's working in the machine learning group uh, at Bayer R&D, where she focused on image analy analysis application to drug discovery. Thank you so much, Paula, for um, accepting to present uh, your work here today and uh, looking forward to the talk. Thank you a lot, Prudencio, for the invitation. And I'm very excited to, to share uh, the work with you guys. And um, just so that the talk is more interactive, um, please raise your, your hand and ask questions during the talk. I will be happy to answer questions and be interrupted. So uh, welcome everybody. Um, today I will be showing you our work <clears throat> where we uh, use uh, cell morphology to guide the de novo hit design. And um, <clears throat> so uh, starting uh, with a general introduction. So uh, in the field of computational molecular design, uh, we propose uh, new molecules either from de novo or uh, so from scratch in de novo design or from pre-generated libraries such as in virtual screening. And we use computational methods as scoring functions to help optimize in, uh, and predict properties of these molecules. And the properties that we could predict can be a structural uh, features, physical chemical properties, compound quality, and so on. But we could also predict activity against biological targets. Um, uh, however, the problem or like the main difficulty about uh, predicting activity against biological tar targets is that uh, it is very difficult to incorporate biological data. And uh, there are many reasons for this. Uh, the first one is the, that uh, sometimes we don't even know which biological readout is relevant for the problem that we have at hand. Uh, if we want to uh, merge data from different sources, uh, we know that biological data is highly heterogeneous and uh, it's, it's very difficult to compare. Or usually there, is in, there are insufficient uh, quantities for machine learning models. And finally, of course, biological systems are very complex and they span from the a full um, individual uh, level <clears throat> or organism level uh, down to the cellular and subcellular level. Um, however, recently there have been uh, some uh, technologies that, that at least tackle these problems at the, um, at the cellular level. And these technologies are cellular, uh, called uh, cellular profiling technologies. And uh, what these technologies do is that they allow a systematic and large-scale uh, large characterization of the cellular response to perturbations because they take a holistic view and they measure hundreds of parameters at the same, at the same time. So the idea is that uh, by using uh, these technologies, we treat the cells with perturbations. It could be chemical perturbations or genetic perturbations. And then we use uh, omics technologies uh, um, as readout uh, to, to characterize the effects in the cells. And you probably know many of those technologies, such as transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics, and so on. But let's say that the new kid in the block is called morphological profiling, 
where we uh, simply take images of the cells and then assume that, this, that the effect of the perturbations inside the cells can be encoded in the morphological changes that these perturbations induce in the cell. And of course, this type of technologies offer a different, um, let's say, interpretation level than transcriptomics because we cannot directly relate the changes to a gene, but it offers uh, uh, many advantages of the other technologies because uh, this is among all the most cost-effective and high-throughput technology. And it's very easily, it's, it's very accessible because most labs and companies uh, already have uh, automated uh, fluorescent microscopes, which is the only thing that you need to do uh, to perform uh, this essay. And just so that you get an uh, idea of what throughput you can get with morphological profiling, <clears throat> at Bayer we can uh, sample uh, around 9,000 samples per week using only one microscope. So it's really, uh, really throughput, high throughput. And um, so how uh, morphological profiling is usually done and is done with an essay called cell painting, where we literally paint cells with fluorophores of different uh, wavelengths and then image different constituents of the cell uh, with fluorescent microscopy. Uh, and in, the, um, in, the, uh, in this essay, we use six stains to uh, um, image in five fluorescent channels to, um, to stain four organelles inside the cell. So in the first channel, we look at the nucleus, the second one, the ER, then mitochondria, actyl, Golgi, plasma membrane, and nucleoli and cytoplasmic RNA. And um, how we use cell painting data usually is that after we obtain the images, so here on the top, you see a zoomed in version uh, of the images of the cells. And in the bottom, you see a zoomed out version where you contain many cells uh, in one image. And uh, how uh, we usually use this data is that we first, uh, uh, pass these images through a, a feature extraction a pipeline. The, uh, this is currently done uh, with Cell Profiler, which is a traditional or like a handcrafted feature. Uh, it's, a, it's a feature extraction method that consists of uh, handcrafted features, but these features are extremely good. And therefore we usually just use directly the feature vectors uh, representing uh, these images instead of directly the images. And uh, these feature vectors are known as morphological profiles, and they, as I said, constitute the basis for all further analysis uh, of, of this type of data. Um, one one quick question, <laughs> if you go back to the previous slide, I was wondering if there is anything else you can measure uh, using this technique, like uh, a particular type of protein, or it just like uh, cells component that you can measure using this technique. And I'm, I'm just a novice in, in the domain, so that's what I'm saying. Um, you can measure whatever you want with immunofluorescence. So, if you you can, if you have an antibody against your specific protein, and then a fluorophore against that antibody, you could virtually image any constituent, like or any specific protein. But the idea of this essay is that it's fixed what what we looked because we want the data to be reusable. So if for each experiment or each project, you change the set of stains, then the data is not comparable anymore. Okay, I see. Okay, good, mm. perfect, thank you. Yeah, and the idea how you use this data is that you will have a database of morphological profiles for which you know what they are doing inside the cell. So uh, for example, you have profiles of toxic compounds or profiles of mTOR inhibitors, and at the end, by guilt by association, you can generate hypotheses of what uh, new perturbations are doing inside the cell. 
So if the profiles are very similar to a group of set, uh, to a group of toxic compounds, you can say, okay, maybe my compound is being uh, toxic. Okay, perfect. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, um, all sorry. Right. Mm -hmm. Can yes. you give us an example of how it, uh, how the vector of features look like? Um, these are real features, <laughs> uh, one feature per cell, and then we take the average. But um, the features um, are so. First of all, we segment single cells and we segment three components for each cell: the nucleus, the cytoplasm, and the full cellular area. And then for each compartment, we extract hundreds of features. So for example, uh, intensities, uh, texture, heraldic features, colocalization between the channels. We also extract uh, channel independent features such as shape and size. Um, yeah, uh, things like that. Is that what you mean? Yes, thanks. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> All right, and uh, then um, what we asked is, okay, so we have these uh, big data sets uh, generating, uh, generated with cell painting. So the question is, how can we uh, use profiling technologies to guide the design of small molecules with a desired biological activity? And uh, uh, looking at some inspiration, so uh, most of you might be familiar uh, with this, uh, with the recent, but not so recent anymore, uh, generative models, uh, where you, for example, input a text, and then the generative model produces images. And these are, are examples of DALI or uh, diffusion models, where uh, if you put uh, as input text an armchair, an armchair in the shape of an avocado, you get these synthesized images, or below for an oil painting of a space shuttle, we, you get these images. So we thought, why, what about if we use a similar approach or at least a similar reasoning, but instead of uh, feeding text, we feed in uh, morphological profiles of cell painting images. And instead of asking for images, we ask the model to produce uh, chemical structures. And uh, in this sense, we will be tackling uh, directly the de novo molecular designed uh, field, uh, proposing novel chemical structures that satisfy the input uh, desired morphological profile. So as an example, if we put the profile of an mTOR inhibitor, then we will expect the model to produce molecules like uh, taurine one or rapamycin. And um, um, to do this, um, uh, so to tackle this, we decided to train a generative, uh, con uh, generative adversarial neural network conditional morphological profiles. And um, this is the overview of the model. So we have a generator network that takes as input Gaussian noise and morphological profiles profile and produces a molecular embedding that represents uh, molecules. And I will talk about this embedding later. And this uh, uh, generator is trained in an adversarial manner uh, with a discriminator that discriminates if this molecular embedding uh, is from a real or from a generated molecule, and therefore forces the generator to generate real looking molecules. And it is also trained um, to maximize the prediction uh, of a condition network which takes the molecular embedding together with the morphological profile and predicts if they match each other or not. And um, how the molecular embedding um, is computed. So uh, this was um, done with a variational uh, autoencoder to uh, reconstruct selfie representations of molecules. And uh, it was uh, based on, uh, on recurrent neural networks and it was trained uh, in Campbell 21 uh, using uh, 1.2 uh, million molecules. And um, 
uh, and this uh, this embedding was trained so before we even start training the gun and at the end uh, once this model is trained we just use the decoder to decode from the molecular embedding into selfies representations and then uh, yeah interpretable uh, molecules and then the other part of the model is trained uh, together and uh, to train this part of the model we use a public self-painting data set that is called the BBB C36 uh, from the Broad Bioimage uh, Benchmark Collection. And this data set contains 30,000 compounds with their corresponding morphological profile. Mm, yes, I see your hand. Yes, uh, one quick question. How do you um, deal with the error propagation in the... Uh, in the auto encoder because like the auto encoder is not digestive right so uh like you can end up with an embedding and there's no molecule that corresponds to it but at least and, and, and vice versa so uh, how do you deal with the the small error that can the gun make and make sure that it decode to something that's reasonable and not and that's because it can decode mm -hmm. a slide that's invalid or anything as well how do we deal with that? Yes, we didn't. We didn't deal with that. <laughs> and you, uh, uh, you will see that also the validity uh, um, of the model is not extremely high, but um, yeah, uh, still the representations uh, are are very good. And um, and at the end, we were focusing more than in having a very good generative model in really proving that the morphological conditioning is doing something. But yeah, that's uh, <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, and then uh, in the rest of the talk, I will I will show you uh, results for the uh, evaluation of the model. So first, uh, the evaluation of the generate, uh, overall generative performance, then show you how uh, we can show that the, there is a translation between phenotypic similarity to generated chemical similarity. And uh, we show how we provide evidence for the generation of bioactives using profiles from genetic perturbations. And finally, if there is time, I will also show uh, interpolation experiments in both the phenotypic space and the chemical space. <clears throat> so uh, starting with the um, overall generative performance, um, uh, we, uh, we condition uh, the generator on 30,000 uh, randomly selected profiles um, uh, per condition group, so from compounds and DMSOs, which are negative controls, and computed several properties uh, of the generated molecules. But I don't want to go too much into detail into this table, but what we can see is that we have an okay validity, and this is what I, I meant prudential, so we only get a validity of about 50% uh, of the molecules. Uh, but uh, uh, in compensation, we have a very high uniqueness of the molecules, so 99% uh, uniqueness. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, so we also see that the uh, molecules are uh, novel and diverse, and that even if we also didn't account for synth synthesizability uh, while training uh, uh, the model, we can see that 50 to 70 percent are synthesizable, judging from two uh, uh, synthetic accessibility scores. And um, at the end, um, the main conclusion from this table is that. Uh, the model is able to generate drug-like uh, molecules with drug-like characteristics with some reasonable performance. But at the end, this is not, uh, as I said, this is not the interesting part of the work. The inter interesting part is to see 
if there were really, if this condition is doing something to the chemical space or not. So at the end, um, so uh, during inference time, uh, when we, once we train the model, we forget about the condition and discriminator networks, and we only work with the generator. And uh, so for, uh, and we feed the generator with uh, different morphological profiles from different compounds. And we ask uh, the generator to generate uh, an arbitrary, arbitrary number of molecules for each input condition. So in most experiments, we're usually usually generating thousands of molecules, but here I only show two uh, for, yeah, because it's not possible to show more. Interesting question is, are there any sensible relationships between the input uh, profiles that we use to condition the network and the output chemical space uh, that comes from the model? And uh, to answer this question, we uh, decided to go for a cluster, uh, clustering-based approach, where we initially clustered the morphological space using 20 clusters. And here on the left, I'm showing a minimum spanning tree, which basically recapitulates the hierarchical organization of those clusters in the high-dimensional uh, morphological space. <laughs> so if two clusters are adjacent to, uh, to each other, uh, this shows that they are also closer in this high-dimensional space. And um, what is important to know also from this figure is that uh, we numbered, we, we selected cluster zero as the cluster for DMSO controls, so cells that were not treated with any control, so the healthy or untouched uh, phenotype. And then we numbered all the other clusters by increasing distance to this inactive cluster. And that means that uh, the higher the number, then the more distant from the uh, inactive DMSO uh, phenotype uh, the cluster is. And um, yes, and then what we did was to uh, pick uh, profiles for each of these clusters and generate, generate 30,000 molecules per cluster. And in order to, to find relationships between the two spaces, uh, we took cluster zero, so the inactive phenotype, as a reference, and then started to see how the uh, distribution of similarities in the chemical space changed as we moved away from cluster zero uh, uh, away from this cluster in the in the in the phenotypic space. So maybe with this figure uh, you can see it clearly. So on the x-axis we have the Morgan similarity of generated molecules uh, uh, relative to molecules from cluster zero. And then as uh, when we start moving away from cluster zero along this line, which is this line in the phenotypic space, we see that the higher we go with numbers, so the more distant we go from DMSO profiles, the, the, <clears throat> the distribution of similarities with respect to the cluster zero move toward lower values. So the, the chemical space is more divergent as we also diverge in phenotypes. And um, this is not only true for that branch of the tree. If we go through the second branch, we see a very similar behavior. And if we go to the uh, third branch of the tree, we also see that for most clusters, uh, these uh, distance uh, relationships uh, are, are consistent. And um, as a, another visualization of basically the same results, we also took uh, nearby clusters and then uh, in the, from the minimum spanning tree and uh, projected the chemical, the generated chemical space using uh, TMAP projections. And what we see is that if we take a consecutive or adjacent clusters in the phenotypic space, the chemical space is not very well differentiated. However, when we take uh, distant clusters in the morphological space, then we see that 
there is a clear segregation between the two groups in the chemical space, uh, which is uh, also very encouraging. So uh, at the end, um, uh, these uh, results show that the model uh, is able to translate morphological similarity into chemical similarity, and that it even presents distance relationships uh, between both levels. All right, but at the end, and the interesting question is, can this model generate, generate known bioactives for specific targets or not? And, uh, and before I continue with this part of the results, I want to highlight that during training, we only use pairs of morphological profiles and chemical structures, but at no time, we gave information to the model about which targets uh, these compounds are targeting inside the cell. So uh, what we thought uh, uh, to answer this question the, uh, about generation of active molecules, we thought, so, okay, what we can do is that instead of uh, feeding uh, profiles from compounds, there are also public data sets of genetic perturbations. So we could feed a profile from a genetic uh, perturbation uh, for gene X, like, um, let's say, and uh, as the generator to generate uh, molecules conditioned on that profile, and then search if among the generated molecules uh, we can find known agonists or non actives against the input gene. However, this is, this is a very uh, dangerous approach to do anything because, as I, as I told you, you can generate as many molecules as you want for each input profile. And of course, the more molecules we generate, the higher the probability that we'll find an active among those generated molecules. So uh, to try, like we really try to do a fair comparison. So what we decided to do is to first do, uh, so to generate molecules, but then first do a scaffold enrichment analysis uh, where we search for overrepresented scaffolds when conditioning on the specific gene compared to DMSO. And then only check if among those enriched scaffolds, we could uh, find non-actives uh, against the gene. And um, for this part of the study, we used uh, as input uh, profiles, we used uh, genetic perturbations from the uh, so-called BBC 37 data set, which contains um, gene overexpression perturbations for 220 genes. And uh, to search for, um, for actives, we, we, we search in the escape database, but in this uh, database, we only searched for agonist compounds uh, following the idea that overexpression perturbations should follow agonism and not antagonism. And this was kind of unfortunate because since we were restricted to agonists, we could only fetch uh, reference compounds or, or known actives for a set of 10 genes out of the 220 genes. And not all those genes were uh, amazingly reproducible in, in the phenotypic space. So uh, here in the bottom row, you see the projection of the uh, phenotypic profiles uh, for uh, these genes. And you see that some of them are not very distinguishable from the controls. So in gray and in black, you see the controls from the training set and from the overexpression set. For example, for TP53, you see that they are not very distinct, like separate, they don't separate that well from the uh, controls. Uh, but for example, for BRAC1 and for NF-kappa-beta1, then we get a, or from HSPA5, we also get a decent separation. Um, all right. so. Um, as I said before, so the approach was we have these genetic perturbations, we generate molecules, 
perform an, a scaffold enrichment analysis and then check if those enriched scaffolds are in any, any of these active uh, compounds against the genes. And, all, uh, and these are the, um, the enriched scaffolds that we could uh, find, for, uh, find for each gene. So also highlighting um, the fairness uh, of this approach is that we don't define a number of active scaffolds per gene. So we just uh, mine the generated molecules. And actually for four out of the five genes, we didn't find any enriched scaffolds. So we couldn't perform any analysis on those genes. And uh, for each of these genes, we found a variable uh, number of scaffolds. And uh, at the end, when we compared these scaffolds against uh, active molecules, we saw that uh, we could only find um, active scaffolds among uh, so molecules con active molecules containing these scaffolds for BRAC1 and for NF-kappa beta. So um, put it into, uh, into numbers, for BRAC1, uh, one of, uh, out of eight proposed scaffolds was found in a potent agonist, which would be a hit rate of 12% compared to 7.6 in the training set. And this is, I think, remarkable because we're really proposing scaffolds from scratch without any uh, information uh, before. And for NF-kappa beta, we proposed uh, two out of 25 scaffolds was, were found in agonists with giving a hit rate of 8%, which is also considerably higher compared to the uh, hit rate that we will find in the training set. And um, we further, uh, we wanted to still uh, investigate how specific uh, the generation of these active-like molecules was. So um, we uh, generated uh, a fixed amount of molecules conditioning uh, the generator on different uh, on profiles from different genes. So um, here you see the, the genes uh, that I included in the previous analysis, but I also now added the 10 most differentiable genes from this data set of 20, 220 genes that we had available. Because now we don't need uh, actives, uh, known actives for these genes, we just use them as a reference to see how often we generate uh, agonist-like molecules. So, okay, that was kind of complicated, but at the end, we have uh, all these genes that, uh, that we're checking for, and um, we generate molecules and quantify how many times conditioning in each of these genes do we generate molecules that are closely resembling these reference agonists that we have for BRAC1. And uh, to define active-like molecules, we use three similarity thresholds, so uh, on uh, dissimilarity. And uh, the same for NF-kappa beta. And what we find is that um, indeed uh, the generation of these active-like molecules is, is very specific. So we have significantly uh, increased counts when we use um, when we condition specifically on BRAC1 uh, compared to all the other genes. And of course, here we're checking against the BRAC uh, agonist. And for uh, and the same for NF-kappa beta with only non-significant differences uh, when we condition on another gene, so NF-kappa beta 1a. So um, at the end, uh, these results really encourage the idea that the generator, uh, the generation of these active light molecules was attributed to the morphological conditioning. And it also exemplifies how our model can be used to generate bioactives for specific targets. And, okay, I think we're still good in time, right? Yes, um, we are good. Yes. Okay. 
and yes, and uh, and then the last part of the results are the interpolation results. So one of the advantage uh, of the model, or like at least the type of representations that we're using, is that we are operating in two continuous spaces. We have a continuous feature space for the morphological profiles and a continuous feature space for the um, chemical descriptors. And therefore, that allows us to interpolate both spaces and see how the model uh, behaves uh, while interpolating the spaces. And, and therefore, we perform interpolation experiments around these uh, uh, agonists uh, or active molecules proposed uh, by the model. Uh, we did for both for the BRAC agonists and for the NF-kappa-beta agonists, but I'm just going uh, to show the results for NF-kappa-beta-1 for uh, simplicity. So again, what we want to do is to um, do interpolation experiments to see how the model behaves around these predictive, uh, predicted uh, active molecules. And um, so uh, how the interpolation experiments were done was uh, we did interpolation in the chemical space, which is shown on the left, and also interpolation on the morphological space, which is shown on the right. And um, we start... Uh, so for the chemical space, we start from a starting molecule, which is our reference agonist, uh, do linear, linear interpolation towards another molecule, and we use the condition network uh, as a critic to um, tell us uh, if the interpolated molecules, uh, well, yeah, if the interpolated molecules match the NF kappa beta overexpression profile or not. So um, this is uh, an example of these interpolation curves. So we start with our known agonist, and we decided to interpolate towards another molecule, which, uh, according to the model, is supposed to have a higher, uh, higher classification score towards the NF-kappa-beta-1 profile. And what we see is that, um, so, um, yeah, so on the x-axis, we can see the cosine distance to the, uh, in the molecular embedding space to the starting molecule. And on the y-axis, this is our critic network, so the condition network uh, reporting the matching probability towards our reference gene, which is NF-kappa-beta-1. And what we see is that as we move progressively in the, in the chemical space, so in the embedding space, we can see also this discrete and reasonable changes in the, in the chemical structures uh, that are decoded from those locations in the space. And what we can also see, or is uh, reassuring to see, is that these changes are not completely random, but there is a trend in uh, when we move into the direction of this end molecule, the matching, uh, the, the matching of the condition network increases uh, progressively. And uh, the other experiments then interpolating the morphological space, and uh, what we do is we start from the DMSO morphological profile and do linear interpolation towards an end profile. And again, we use the condition network to, um, to as a critic to tell us if the interpolated profiles match the, uh, a reference molecule or not. And again, the reference molecules against which we are computing the matching against is our uh, reference uh, proposed agonists towards NF-kappa-beta. And uh, the ending profile, so the direction towards which we move, we use three directions. We first move uh, into random directions, into the top PCA directions, so the directions in the morphological space of maximum variation. And finally, we move specifically towards the direction of NF-kappa-beta uh, of the NF-kappa-beta profile, 
which was the gene for which this molecule is supposed to be active on. And um, what we see is that as we start moving into like into that we see first first from the general trend we see that there is a nice dose response uh, as we move away from the inactive or the negative control uh, phenotype. And what is very interesting is that indeed when we move towards the direction of NF kappa beta, we see uh, a higher increase in the matching probability towards this agonist that if we move uh, in the top uh, 10 PCA components or uh, in random directions. So this shows that the model is, is indeed uh, learning some uh, meaningful trends in the morphological space, and it doesn't rely only in general activity or general phenotypic strength uh, as it is represented by the top PCA components. And uh, we repeated uh, these experiments uh, uh, for uh, different molecules. So we also did the interpolation for this end molecule, uh, finding similar results, and also try interpolations in the opposite direction. So not towards increased activity, which will be like uh, op molecular optimization example, but also towards decreased activity, just to see what happens. And we see that we, we get very similar results, although the, um, the classification uh, curves for uh, lower activity are more random also because of the randomness uh, of the end molecule uh, that we picked. And uh, when we do linear interpolation in the morphological space, in the opposite direction, we also see that uh, when we use, uh, that when we move directly towards the NF kappa beta uh, one phenotype, we get a faster uh, decrease in the classification uh, towards uh, this molecule. So um, at the end, uh, from this interpolation experiments, what we can conclude is that um, they highlight the quality of the molecular descriptors and also the morphological descriptors. And it also shows that the, morpholo that the morphology chemistry relationships uh, learned by the model are, are kind of uh, sensible and sound since they show those response, those response effects and they are not just isolated uh, predictions. And uh, this also demonstrates the potential of, the potential of uh, our framework for molecular optimization. Mm. All right. And, mm -hmm. Yes, can we go back to your previous slide? Um, I was wondering if the, these results are more um, showing, kind of more telling about the, smooth, the smoothness of the, of the species that you have portrayed. Uh, than than anything else because like I can easily see um, it's working great but at the same time let's say we have like activity curves like molecules that are very close but then very different activity then it would be very hard for the for the for the model to kind of um, uh, I'd be it'd be easy to, for, the, for the model to fail to detect that right and propose like some of the activity curves like for example let's say you want to optimize activity you say okay this one might be uh, slightly better activity or have the same activity, but yet that's not the case because like it's just due to the smoothness of the of the space. I'm not sure if I got the the uh, the idea. Yeah. So I is yeah. I guess the, the the question is how much of this is due to the smoothness of the maybe for example mm -hmm. in the case of the molecular. Uh, space, like how much of this is due to the smoothness of the protein autoencoder and and rather mm -hmm. do you think that's been learned by the by the overall 
network. Yeah, that's a difficult uh, question to <laughs> to answer. But I think like the conclusions that we're drawing from here. Okay, I, I said I said that the smoothness or this dose response uh, behavior is uh, reassuring and encouraging. But I think that the <clears throat> truly uh, or less biased conclusion is about the um, the steepness of the of the changes when you move selectively in different directions. So, um, so I think yeah, the, the main take home message is more that if we move specifically, like especially for the other case, just a second, uh, for this case, that we move, <coughs> that if we, if we use this uh, known agonist, if we move specifically into the direction of NF-kappa beta one, we get a higher, a more steep, increase in the matching probability to the molecule than if we move in random directions or in the highest axis of variation. And uh, yeah, but you're you're right. Like I cannot say from where this smoothness and those response is coming from. Uh, it could be that it's due to the variation and autoencoder that, uh, that learn the chemical representation space. Um, yeah. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. mm, all right, so um, that uh, brings me to the end. So um, as, a, as, as the main conclusions, um, we think that our work uh, demonstrates that it is possible to influence the chemical space in proposed Taylor bioactives uh, solely based in cell morphology and without prior information on biological targets. And what we also think is interesting from this approach is that uh, based on a uh, it is based on a target agnostic readout, so cell painting, and uh, and therefore it facilitates knowledge trans knowledge transfer between different biological pathways, and in principle it could be used to design bioactives for many targets under one unified framework. Of course, with the small letters only for those targets that show a distinctive phenotype in cell painting uh, in the cell painting essay, <clears throat> which is of course not all all the targets. And um, we think that the, uh, this work provides a first step towards the systematic use of high content imaging for molecular design. And uh, we still think that this is a proof of concept and that by using larger data sets, we, we, we expect that we will be able to push our approach uh, before beyond this proof of concept and provide fast access to innovative chemistry influencing diverse biological pathways. And yeah, so that was all and thank you for your attention and I would like to take more questions or discussions, comments, anything. Perfect. Thank you so much, uh, Paula, for the, for the great talk. Um, if you have any questions, please uh, raise your hand or write in the chat. Um, yeah. Please go ahead, uh, Daniel. Hi, thanks for the talk. Uh, very interesting. Kind of a basic question. I was just wondering why you chose the uh, GAN generative framework over another, you know, there's a lot of popular ones. You highlighted diffusion models early on. Just wondering how you uh, arose yeah. with that. Yeah, so we started with this project very long ago because it has been like a side project. <laughs> so uh, we started before diffusion models really came out and became popular. But another reason is that um, we already had a paper uh, actually in this 
Oh, no, it's not there. We, we already had a publication in Nature Communications where we had proposed the same approach, but with gene or expression, with gene expression profiles, so with transcriptomics. And therefore, we just basically adapted the code and architecture just to plug morphological features instead of gene expression features and repeat the same drill. So it was more a practical motivation. Gotcha. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Things uh, things go fast in that world. <laughs> yes. Any other questions? One one thing that was uh, bothering me when you showed the first set of results is the the validity of the of the of the of the whole generation process, and I was <laughs> wondering like. What what could you do or could could people do to kind of kind of improve on this validity aspect? Is it mainly due to the low validity of the initial um, VAE, or is it just because of the fact that this VAE is trained separately from the GAN? I'm I'm just kind of mm -hmm. trying to understand where who is the fault. If is it the second model or the the first one, or the fact that they are not just uh, trained end to end? So. Uh, in this specific case, it was mainly due to uh, validity of the autoencoder. So we tried to encode the code molecules independently of the generator. And when we plugged in the generator, the validity reduced also compared to the uh, autoencoder alone. But the autoencoder was already a bit uh, suboptimal. So yeah, it's... That, that was the main reason. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, there's a question in the chat about from William. What is the typical throughput from for doing cellular imaging? Means the beginning of the talk. Yeah. What's the typical throughput for doing cellular imaging? Yeah, I think it's high throughput, right? Yeah, yeah. So it like uh, so at least if you have uh, robotic systems uh, performing the essays for you in, uh, and you also have uh, automated microscopes, you could easily test uh, around nine thousand samples per week using only one microscope, one of the high these high throughput microscopes. But of course, uh, these uh, cell painting uh, uh, features are also noisy. And you're always recommended to do at least three uh, repetitions per perturbation, preferably four to five. So, yeah, 9,000 samples per week, but you need to multiply by the number of repetitions, technical repetitions. Okay, perfect. Jonathan? Yeah, thank you. Um... This was really interesting, and I mean that in the American English usage, which is a positive <laughs> versus the British English. Um, so, what what would you compare this to? Like, help help me contextualize this. Like, these methods are really cool. It's very mm -hmm. interesting. You know, the the generative methods seem to perform you know pretty well, but you know, it seems like you're you're generating a bunch of molecules. You're looking at the the scaffolds, and you're saying, how similar are these scaffolds to things that I know work? And and mm -hmm. you know how how could how could this be used you know by Bayer or somebody or or what would what would this be put 
you know, pit against so that you could say that this is much better than, you know, something else. Huh. Yeah, like if I will need to prove uh, the managers at Bayer that this works, I will pick one of our projects, uh, internal projects where the chemists are trying to design uh, and uh, yeah, optimize the heat and uh, test the target that they are uh, searching for in the cell painting essay, uh, ask this, this model to generate molecules and uh, find which scaffolds are enriched for that specific uh, morphological profile. And then uh, ask the chemist to also synthesize the proposed molecules by the GAN and compare if they are active uh, or not. So, and I, I think, so that will be how to prove that this actually generates sense, like uh, decent molecules for uh, the specific target. But then the next step, uh, if we, it would be to identify for which genes or at least for which, uh, um, which targets uh, in the morphological profiling uh, space, uh, we are sure that we, that we get um, distinctive morphological profiles such that we can trust uh, the generated molecules. And then really start, let's say, the novel uh, testing for different projects. But first, it will be to identify for which parts of the morphological space do we get uh, decent and reasonable predictions. And yeah, and that could start new projects uh, if you say, uh, out of nowhere, I think that these molecules are going to uh, hit this target uh, with very high confidence. And yeah, that could create new projects. Does, does this answer <laughs> uh, the question? Or Yeah, I think so. I mean, let's say that I were to give you a new target and say, you know, give me the 100 best compounds that, that you believe in. And I'm going to pit you up against a bunch of, you know, very skeptical medicinal chemists that are going to do the same. Uh -huh. And, you know, let's say we don't actually have starting material. So we, we can't go and say, well, these scaffolds are similar to what we know. You know, what, what, what would be like the hit rate expected hit rate for something like this or is that just too mm -hmm. you know this is way too you know proof of concept right now to even answer something like that yeah this is this is very proof of concept but i have to say so for some of the genes we selected very few molecules and we synthesized those molecules and tested them against the targets and what we found is that I don't have the numbers here, but it was like, really, we got an unexpectedly, unexpectedly high uh, activity uh, rate of these synthesized molecules against the target. But the puzzling thing was that they were not um, uh, agonist. Most of them had an antagonist effect. We were like, oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but at some point, also some chemists said, like, actually, the the line between agonism and antagonism is very thin because sometimes you modify something in a molecule and then it becomes an antagonist uh, instead of an agonist. Especially agonists are very tricky. Yeah, it seems the one constant of all these models is that they'll surprise you. Uh, anyway, thank, thank you for a <laughs> yes. very interesting time. Thanks. I think there's a question by David in the chat. Um, he's currently involved in setting up a self-painting assay for a compound library, and uh, he's wondering if you have noticed any 
compound class being underrepresented in the current available data? Hmm. No, I didn't really explore so much the chemical space of the current data set, but um, I mean, so so what are you trying to do? Are you trying to create a diverse library library for self painting? Uh, because I uh, I could refer you refer you to new resources like um, I don't know if you're aware of the JumpCP consortium who uh, which was a large consortium where we screened 130,000 genetic and chemical perturbations uh, in a collaborative effort between uh, several nonprofit and profit organizations. And if you start using that data, uh, there like only chemical perturbations is, uh, is I think uh, something like 120,000. So there you could really use this data to define a phenotypically diverse, like phenotypically and chemical uh, diverse set. But I didn't explore that, the diversity. Mm 